We'll turn back to Amos in chapter 5, and just want to read some of the verses again there, which we have already considered or read together, uh, from verse 7, Amos and chapter 5 and verse 7. The words of Amos, the words of the Lord to Israel, from verse 7. Ye who turn judgment to wormwood, and leave off righteousness in the earth, seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with night, that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name, that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Forasmuch, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just, they take a bribe, and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Therefore, the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. Amen. Let's leave the reading there. Let's ask the Lord's help as we come to consider his word this morning. Lord, we give thanks that again we may come into the presence of our God and Uh, How again we may come around thy word to consider its truth and its import to our lives. We pray, Lord, this morning that as we do so, the Holy Spirit himself might come and apply these things, that we might have understanding of them, and Lord, that we might live them out in accordance with thy word. We pray these things for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's been almost two years since we last considered the book of Amos, and since then, it's quite likely that a lot of what has been previously said has now been forgotten. Maybe, maybe even the fact that we were even considering Amos at some point has been forgotten because it's been so long. I thought since it's the new year now and things seem to be returning to some semblance of normality, let's get back to that consideration of this wonderful book. The last time we considered this book, we considered chapter 5 and verses 7 to 9. I think it's best that we have probably a refresher on the book as a whole from the beginning, not, uh, not exhaustive of course, or we'll be here all day, before continuing on where we left off briefly. The book of course concerns the northern kingdom of Israel and the word of God which came to Amos as he followed the flocks and herds in the southern kingdom. There in Tekoa, a small town in that southern kingdom, referred to as Judah in the word of God, a town south of Jerusalem uh, called Tekoa. And Amos was a herdsman, he describes himself, and he also calls himself a a gatherer of sycamore fruit, of figs. But the Lord took hold of him as he went about his occupation daily uh, and gave him a word and a command to go and prophesy to the people of the northern kingdom. Uh, And so Amos goes in obedience to the northern kingdom and he comes to Bethel, And it seems that it is there that the man of God speaks God's word. Bethel was the location of the king's palace or sanctuary. Uh, The king's chapel it is described, I believe, in chapter 7 of Amos. It was therefore a seat of the rich and the powerful. 
and all, of all those who had ambitions after riches and power. In the very commencement of the first chapter, we see that Amos comes and says that the Lord is going to roar from Zion and he will utter his voice from Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the hill of Zion specifically was where the temple was, uh, the temple of the Lord, the place where the Lord's name was worshipped, the place then that his authority was visible from uh, at that time in his relationship with his people. So Amos goes then to speak first uh, the word of the Lord of the sins of the nations, first of all, around Israel. You may remember the words, for three transgressions and for four, you may remember. Seven nations he mentions, including Judah, speaking of their sins, and that due to their sins, the Lord would not turn away their various punishments, which were also detailed in that first chapter and then into chapter 2. And then Amos comes finally to speak of Israel themselves. And we mentioned how that the people of Israel would have been drawn in, first of all, because Amos was speaking these words of judgment and of punishment upon their neighbors, who they had at least uh, some level of enmity against Israel, uh, many of them great enmity. But then suddenly we find that Amos mentions Israel themselves and goes on to mention their sins, how they oppress the poor. How they pressed their faces into the dust. This is chapter 2. How they took bribes. How they sold the pet poor for a pair of shoes. For the price of a pair of sandals. How they laid themselves down on garments that were given as a pledge. Garments that should have been returned to the pledger before nightfall. But rather than being returned, they laid themselves down upon them. And what did they lay themselves down upon them to do? To commit acts of sexual deviancy like the nations round about them and it says there that they drank the wine of the condemned the word condemned means the the one who is fined that which was taken from those who had been found guilty as a result of the bribe given and fined in goods and in finances those things taken from the poor then were consumed before their gods and so the whole situation then was tainted by idolatry and it's important for us to to have a clear understanding and and memory of what it was that Israel had done and that is the reason why Amos was sent to them and so to summarize in chapter 2 and verse 6 we see a a perversion of justice in Israel in chapter 2 and the first part of verse 7 we see their oppression of the poor in chapter 2 and the second part of verse 7 we see this sexual impurity And then finally, in chapter 2 and verse 8, we see this flagrant idolatry. Israel had adopted the practices and the false worship of the nations round about. And so the Lord speaks of their sin. But then he goes on and he speaks of his mercies, both temporal and spiritual. How he had brought them out of Egypt and how he had destroyed their enemies before them, brute and branch. And how he gave them the word. For he raised from out of their own number prophets who he gave his word. And out of their own sons, Nazarites, who were devoted young men who took vows of holiness. And despite the Lord's spiritual mercies, nevertheless they commanded the prophets to be silent and to not speak the word of God. And they caused the Nazarites to drink strong drink. And thus 
break their vows. So the Lord is thus angry with them, as effect follows cause, and so their sin would be followed by his judgment. And we see the Lord's justice throughout, but we also see his sympathy with the poor, the meek, the contrite. He is a defender of those who are poor in spirit. He is sorely displeased at those to whom he would look, as Isaiah says, the one of contrite heart, one who trembles at his word. Those are the ones who are turned out of the way of the meek because of the oppression of those who had been given responsibility as well as the rule over them. The Lord holds those whom he has given power responsible. They are given power because he has given it, even as Pilate was given it. Lord Jesus said to him, Thou hast have no power over me at all, except it was given thee by my Father. And in Romans 13, we, speak, we, we read of the powers that be being ordained of God. But if they do not do that which they have been given power to do, the Lord is angry with them. In this chapter then, chapter 5, I would remind you that we are considering a passage which is commonly considered to be a funeral song. The first words of, the, of this chapter are these. Hear ye this word which I take up against you, even the lamentation, O house of Israel. Here's a lamentation then. He laments, the Lord laments over Israel. And in this chapter, the prophet speaks to the people. In chapter 4, he has ironically directed them to the places that he mentions here. In chapter 4, he tells them to go to Bethel, go to Gilgal, those places which they considered sacred and at which they would offer sacrifices. The Lord states uh, that in doing so, they would be multiplying transgressions in chapter 4 and verse 4. But in chapter 5, the Lord pronounces judgments on those very same places which were considered by the people to be sacred and holy places, special places in their, uh, uh, their consideration. But they were not sacred. They were empty. And so the Lord says, thus Bethel shall come to naught. Their shrines in these places would be judged, for they were nothing but outward pretenses at religion and worship. They were not real worship. They were not true religion. How could they say that they worshipped correctly and from the heart? When at the same time they, as verse 7 says, turn judgment to wormwood. Turn the right ways of the Lord, the sweet ways, the sweet word of God, into bitterness at the wormwood. If they do such a thing with God's word, how can they possibly be considered to be truly worshipping the Lord, even if they pretend to do so outwardly? They had oppressed the poor. They had left off righteousness in the earth, verse 7. That is to say, they cast off righteousness as if they had no use for it, and they knew not to do good. Righteousness is completely abandoned, and yet they pretended still to worship the Lord, to to worship the true God of heaven. The word of God was not sweet unto their taste. Their worship was pure vanity then. We see then the power of God in verse 8. He who formed the stars and the constellations, who causes the the light to turn to darkness, causes the darkness to turn to light. He pours forth the water of the oceans upon the earth. 
the Lord, that is here the Tetragrammaton, the name which we would consider to be Jehovah, the Lord is his name. And yet that power of God, he shows, can be brought to bear against them. That the weak may be made strong against those that oppress them. And that the fortresses, however mighty that they dwelt in and felt secure, could be overthrown. For the power of God is able to bring justice to those who love righteousness. For God is both just and he is righteous. And so we must consider the might and power of our God. That he is the object of our worship. Thus we must worship him, not in vanity, not in pretense. For that is not true worship, but in spirit and in sincerity. We now want to consider verse 10 and the following. For here we have this subject to consider this morning. As we continue in Amos once more and pick up where we left off. We have in verse 10 and the following. The hatred of righteousness. And its consequences. The hatred of righteousness and its consequences. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Verse 10. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. You have planted vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Therefore, the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil or a calamitous time. First of all, then, as we consider these verses we see a rancor for the righteous. The words used in verse 10 are very strong. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. In verse 7, we saw that they had left off righteousness in the earth, meaning they had cast it off, having no use for it. Being righteous did not further their purposes. Their purposes were to receive power. They lusted for power. For comfort and ever more wealth and riches, these people, these rulers of Israel. And here we have that fact, that fact confirmed and even clarified. For it was not merely that they had no use for righteousness themselves, but they hated righteousness to the degree that they could not bear to even hear the words of the righteous. They would not bear to see the one who walked and spoke uprightly. The one that rebukes in the gate, the one who corrects. Their evil ways was hated. They abhorred. And this is a strong word here which could be variously translated as abominated or are repulsed by him that spoke uprightly. There is a lot of strength in this sentence. Previously I've mentioned a, a chiastic sentence structure and here it is used again. The words they hate are set at the beginning of the sentence. And the words they abhor are set at the end of the sentence, meaning that both of those phrases are to be emphasized. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate. And him that speaketh uprightly do they abhor. There is an inordinate amount then of hatred for the one who speaks truth. 
They have no time for righteousness. They have no time for the truth of God. They cannot bear to be corrected. And so the one who dares to correct them, to reprove them for their wickedness in the gate, the place where justice was always meted out, in the gate of the city, the one who dared to do so was hated. The one who spoke truth instead of corruption, how they abhorred, how they abominated them. And so they thus persecuted those who were God's faithful ministers and those people who were faithful in their witness to righteousness. They could not bear to be reproved. They could not bear to be rebuked. They had this rancor for righteousness and for the righteous. It is by God's word that sins of mankind are shown to be what they are, hateful and corrupt. And we read earlier from John 15 how the Lord Jesus Christ said that they had no cloak for their sin, for he had come and spoken truth to them. And therefore, because of that, they hated him. Likewise here, they could not even bear to see men and women walking and speaking uprightly, for it showed them up. Just like the Pharisees hated the Lord Jesus for the very same reason. Jealousy and envy and maliciousness. These men and women then were counted as their enemies because they spoke the truth. When sin abounds, the truth cannot be abided. Do we not see that ourselves in this world today? The seeming insanity of the world. How they cannot bear truth. How truth is abhorred. And how a lie is loved. We see it. Of course we do. The pride of man will bring him low, for it causes him never to accept correction, but to harden his neck. And such persons will be suddenly destroyed, and that without remedy, as Proverbs tells us. A rancor for the righteous. There's also here a distressing of the destitute. The result of this hatred of God's truth is a distressing of the destitute. It is the continuance in sinful oppression of the poor and the lowly. And the Lord says in verse 11, for as much, therefore, because, therefore, you have treaded upon the poor, trod upon the poor, you have pressed their faces into the dust, as he says in chapter 2. They took from them the burdens of wheat. Considered that this wheat was taken as a tax. And they're called burdens because it is thought they were themselves compelled to bear and carry those burdens of wheat to their overlords. And the Lord is angered by the way in which these poor were taxed. The implication follows then that by use of the wealth gained, these wealthy landowners then built extravagant houses for themselves of hewn stone, materials of great expense. Their gardens were planted as vineyards, grapes grown for the fermentation of wine. Verse 12 states that their transgressions here were manifold and the Lord considers that their sins were mighty sins, he says. And what were their sins? They afflicted the just. They afflicted the righteous, the righteous. And they took a bribe. They corrupted justice upon the earth. They turned the poor, it says, out of the gate from that which was theirs by right. That, that which they had a right to, they were turned away from. Their freedoms were restricted by those who ruled over them. And how God hates such sins. He calls them mighty sins and manifold transgressions. 
In chapter 2, these wicked rulers are said to turn aside the way of the meek. This is to say that those who are meek, those who are mild in nature, those who would be law-abiding, who sought to be at peace in their lives, were turned out of such ways, were turned to bitterness, were turned to sinfulness themselves, turned out of the way of the meek because of how they were treated by those who ruled over them. The Lord calls these sins, as I've said, their manifold transgressions and their mighty sins. So the Lord by Amos denounces these specific acts of oppression in the strongest possible terms. And if the Lord hates such sins, then we must also hate them. The Lord Jesus himself came to preach good tidings to the meek, he says. He was sent to bind up the brokenhearted. He was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. These are those to whom the Lord looks. The Lord hates a proud look. He hates a haughty spirit. And such things we also should hate with a righteous hatred. Here in Israel then, the upright, the meek, they are hated and they are thus oppressed. And such is the nature of the one who opposes God's truth and God's way. They hate those who are spiritually humble. They hate those who wait upon the Lord. They hate those who will speak truth. They hate those who will live according to that truth. And so the Lord hates them and will bring judgment upon them. But there is here, blessedly, also, a consequence for the corrupt. A consequence for the corrupt. The Lord is not some moral invertebrate, as some men are, so to speak, having no backbone. No, our God is a God of justice and of judgment. He will not allow sin to pass. He will not allow sin to go unpunished. He is himself all righteousness and truth. And so those who love his truth and those who love to walk in righteousness, those who are upright in their words and in, have integrity within their hearts will surely be avenged by him. And it is the case here. There are consequences for their actions and there is judgment for their sins. And that judgment is shown in two aspects here. First of all, it is shown in the gratification that is denied them. Gratification denied. All of the proceeds of their persecution of the poor and the upright would not profit them a thing. Their houses of hewn stone, that stone which would have been quarried specially and shaped, expensively imported. Their houses of hewn stone, what would become of them? The Lord says that they will not dwell in them. Those pleasant vineyards that they love to sit in perhaps and shade themselves from the heat of the sun and drink their wine which came from the grapes. They would not drink wine of them. They would not enjoy them. Their ostentatious living would not last long. The Lord was going to bring judgment upon them. They were going to be taken away out of the land. Their houses would be broken down or they would be enjoyed by someone else other than them. Their vineyards would be laid waste or the grapes thereof would be taken by their enemies and enjoyed by them instead. They would be exiled. 
their houses enjoyed by another. As the Lord says previously, he will smite the winter house with the summer house. Though they had houses in one place and another, depending on the season of the year, yet neither would be enjoyed by them. The Lord would deny them gratification out of the proceeds of their sin and oppression. Secondly, that we see in terms of this judgment, uh, the upright suppressed. And this is seen in verse 13. It says there in verse 13, Therefore the prudent, that is the wise, shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. The prudent, the wise, would not speak anymore in the time of God's judgment. They hated those that spoke uprightly, those that reproved them in the gate. And so as judgment, those prudent ones, those wise ones, those who did walk uprightly, those who rebuked them, they would now keep silence. Whether because repressed finally by the persecution of the wicked, or because the risk of speaking was no longer worthwhile, or because their words were not heeded anyway, whatever the reason would have been, the prudent, the wise, the upright would no longer speak in their wisdom, In that time, an evil time, which means a calamitous time, the wise and the good and the upright and the righteous would keep silent. There is a judgment of the Lord upon them then in this. The affliction of the just has brought about their silence and with it God's judgment. His silence towards them then, it organically follows their actions. As they said to the prophets, prophesy not as they caused their Nazarites to drink wine and break their vows, as they hated those who rebuked in the gate and abhorred those who spoke uprightly, so now there would be no word from God. It is true that even in this there is still some mercy, for the Lord's ministers and prophets would still continue to speak and preach his truth, as they must always do and must cry aloud still, but in large part there would be now a famine of the word of the Lord and this is the judgment of God the Lord will not allow such sin to pass if they so hated to hear his word and his truth and commanded the prophets to be silent and the devoted of the Lord's people to turn away from their devotion so the Lord would cause his faithful to be silent that there would be no witness at all to them of God's word The nations then where there is no witness to the truth of Christ are nations that truly are under the judgment of God. And how many times throughout history have we seen this taking place? In countries where there is persecution and oppression, where they have finally, as they see it, stamped out the word of God and all preaching of the truth. They think that they have won, but really they have brought about the judgment of God upon them. For the hearing of the word of God and his truth is a blessing and a grace which he gives to a nation where that word is freely and can be freely heard. What a sad state to be in. Let us pray that it would never be so in this nation. The Lord grant that it should never be said of Britain, of the United Kingdom. They are joined to idols. Let them alone. And so we come, as we close, to our application this morning. And first of all, we must realize that we must have courage to speak the truth as long as we can. We must have courage to speak the truth as long as we can. As I said earlier, where sin abounds, 
truth cannot be abided. The world is given over to a lie. They are deceived. Their eyes are blinded by the God of this world. They are taken captive at his will. And yet even as in Israel there were still those who reproved, those who rebuked, so we must do so in the days in which we live. We must have courage to speak regardless of how it is received. We should not be surprised though if it is rejected. For the truth is designed to make those uncomfortable who have lived and loved a lie. Those who reject the truth are shown to be those who love a lie. And yet as the Lord has said, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, yet still it is incumbent upon the Lord's people to speak the truth either way. We are to be witnesses against the world if they reject the truth. And to those who will hear, we are to be a witness for the truth. Let us therefore ensure that we have an understanding of this. Let us be fearless, courageous. Let us be iron-skinned in the face of opposition. We have the truth. We must speak the truth. For only by the truth are men and women set free. We must reprove. We must speak uprightly in the gate. We must walk uprightly in our lives, even if we are hated for it. They hated Christ for the same reason. They put him to death for it. And yet what reward was his as he bore that shame and endured the cross? He is now exalted for his faithfulness in completing that work. For he said it is finished. And he rose from the dead and he ascended upon high. And he's been given a name above every name. That at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a reward he gained for continuing even in the face of opposition. As Hebrews 12.3 says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Oh, how easily we can become wearied. How easily we become faint in our minds. Opposition is tiring, feeling as though you are speaking into the air, into the void. That there are, is no response. That there is no one coming in to hear the word of God. That those of this world will not hear. It is draining of our energy. But lest you become wearied and faint in your own minds, consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners himself. There are many ministers, preachers, pastors throughout the ages who have toiled night and day, by day preaching the word, by night praying and seeing little to no fruit, and yet they remain faithful even unto death, and they have and will receive a crown of life. They were about their father's business. Let us likewise do as this uh, is instructing us to do to consider our lord jesus christ that we should not become weary in well-doing for we shall reap if we faint not let us speak the truth with courage in the gate as long as we may and let us work while it is yet day and then secondly by way of application we should lament and pray against those who oppress and create bitterness in the hearts of the people Remember that this passage is a lamentation over Israel, a funeral song, as it were. As the Lord laments over the sin of his people, so we should lament over the sin of our nation. And later on, in verse 16 and following, we will see this even more starkly in the words of the Lord. 
But we must lament over the sin of our nation. We must lament in prayer before the Lord. Much has changed since we last considered Amos back in the early part of 2020. We might say that the opposition of the state to the people and to true religion has become more overt, perhaps especially in other nations. We must lament over that, but we must also pray against it. Let us seek the Lord, the one who casts the stars into their courses, who causes Orion, as it were, to ride forth into the void of space as he creates the constellations. He it is who is all-powerful. The rich seek their own way, the powerful seek their own ends, but our God reigns over all. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. He'll laugh at them. Let us then, therefore, pray against them. Let us lament also. Has your heart been broken over the state of this nation and its people? Can we truthfully say that we have lamented over our land, over lost sinners, over seemingly a lost morality of any shape? As they departed from the Lord, the nations depart also from all sense, from all sanity, and we've seen it before our very eyes. That should cause us to mourn. Perhaps in time, as I say, we will come to consider this subject in more depth in the later parts of this chapter. But for now, let us consider how it is our duty to lament and seek the Lord fervently for the restoration of true worship. And then, thirdly and lastly, by way of application, we must ensure that we are not those ourselves who disdain the word of the Lord. It is not impossible that we who testify of God's grace in our lives could ourselves in some way disdain the word of God. The Lord Jesus, when he spoke to the Pharisees, who feigned dedication to the word of God, said, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. It is important that we do due reverence to the word of God and receive it in meekness and submission, as it is the word of the Lord himself. In context, we must be wary of our attitude to God's word for two reasons. First of all, it is by the word of God that we are corrected. And so we must be careful in our attitude towards it. For it is by it we are corrected. If we, like the people of Israel in this passage, do not give due diligence to the hearing of the word of God, if rather, like them, we disdain it and hate to hear it and have an attitude of hating to be reproved, hating to be corrected by God's word, then what will the result of that be? Be wary then this morning that you don't have a hardness in your heart toward God's word. Remember that the word also says in Proverbs, he that being often reproved, corrected, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Let that not be so to you. Let the word of God wash over you, for it is by the word that we are sanctified, by the pure water of the washing of the word. 
But then secondly, we must be careful of our attitude towards the word of God because our attitude towards the word of God is relevant to our worship. As Isaiah said, and as the Lord Jesus quoted, because they pretended to draw near to God, though their hearts were far from him, their worship was in vain. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You cannot rightly worship the Lord if you have an inward disdain or an indifference to his word. As we have a right attitude to God's word, and as we consider it to be important, and as we read it and meditate upon it ourselves, so we worship him correctly and show our love for him in sincerity. As we close, please turn to Ezekiel and chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. There we read the words of the Lord speaking to Ezekiel about those to whom he prophesied. And as we reconsider your own attitude to God's word. The Lord says to Ezekiel, Also thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, every one to his brother, saying, Come. I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. This morning you sit before the Lord as his people, hear his word but will you be a doer of that word or a hearer only with your mouth perhaps showing much love but your heart is it going after covetousness and after the things of this world may we be challenged by the word of God this morning and may the Lord be pleased to bless it to our hearts as we have considered it today for his glory and for our sanctification. God grant it in Jesus' name. Amen.